Okay, children, or not so young children. How about the lady there in the polka dotted dress? You already talked one time, didn't you? You were pretty good. How about your brother there? What did we talk, uh, what did we learn last night? Perfect. Yeah, that's very good. Are you going to remember that 10 years from now? You need to. It'll help you make good choices. Tonight's is not so easy. And so we're going to go over this one for two evenings. And maybe it's a little bit over the heads of elementary students. But yet, you need to learn it. And it goes like this. <clears throat> We should be less afraid of failure than being good at things in life that don't really matter. We should be less afraid of failure than being good at things in life that don't really matter. So when you get to heaven, what are you going to say, man? You know, I, I went, and I was down here studying, and, we're, and they, I kept hearing these motors running. And I just found out today there's a racetrack back here. And you get to heaven and you say, you know, I went around that circle faster than anybody else on uh, Sunday afternoon. That, seriously? That's what you want to tell them when you get to heaven? Or, you know, I, I just love to play this game. We, we knocked each other down. We hugged men and rolled around over a piece of pig skin. Sunday. And, man, it was awesome. Is that what you want to tell Jesus when you get there? We should be less afraid of failure than being good at things in life that don't really matter. Morgan, you remember that? Yes, sir. Okay. Don't forget it. What I have to share tonight is brokenness and the bread of life. In my childhood, some of you knew where I grew up, uh, Samuel Gehring lives there now. It's about two miles north of the Bank Church in the Dayton, Virginia area. And our lane was a mile long from the paved road, and we the rode a bicycle or walked. And, you know, it was uh, in the wintertime when it was cold, it was uphill both ways, you know. That's what your children think you tell them, but... Every week, after that cold walk or bike ride home, sometime, I think it was Wednesday, when we got home, our mother was making bread. And she was probably just taking it out of the oven. And the smell of that fresh bread was almost intoxicating itself. And then she would cut us off a hot piece, and we'd slather it with butter and drizzle honey off over it. And that memory is forever met, etched on my mind as my home of my mother making bread when we got out of school. The scriptures are full examples of bread and the important part that it plays in most of our lives. Perhaps it's the, most, the first solid food that every nursing baby eats. You know, they give them a bread crust, a kind of gum or chew on. In Genesis chapter 3, 19, God told Adam that because of his sin and disobedience, that he and his descendants, that's us, will always have to work hard and break a sweat in order to have bread. Some people think that you can go through life and have plenty of bread, literal or otherwise, without working. It's not biblical. Bread, in, through the scriptures, is an example. It's a generic term for food. And so in Genesis chapter 18, we read where Abraham's chief cook took flour and made bread for entertaining mysterious guests. I don't know if he made tortillas or biscuits or how he did it. I doubt if he took the time to make a soft yeast bread. But then until he butchered the uh, calf, he may have had time to let it raise and bake it. I don't know. Then we go to Genesis 43, and we have the story of Joseph in Egypt. 
and his brothers coming all the way down to Canaan. And they didn't come down there to buy chariots. They didn't come down there to buy wakeboards or snowboards or toys. They came looking for bread or the ingredients to make bread for their growing families back home. And so that becomes front and center when you don't have any. That's what you start thinking about in your dreams is bread. In Exodus chapter 12, we have the story of the flight of the Egyptians out of Egypt. And it says this, that during the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites, go and worship the Lord as you have been requested. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and go and also bless me. And the Egyptians urged the people to take and hurry and leave the country, for otherwise they said, we'll all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. And the Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. And so I'm not sure what all is implied in this story, but these ladies probably did like a lot of cultures today. They make a little bread every day. And boy, when it was time to go and Pharaoh told them to leave, their bread was still in the needy, in the bowl. And so they just wrapped a coat around it so it wouldn't get all dusty and, and took off with their bread with them. And it, many cultures grind their corn and make their tortillas or their whatever they use for their bread every day. Now, my dad used to visit a, an elderly lady in what is now called the Peak Community in the uh, Harrisonburg area, back at the foot of the mountains. And this lady's name was Bessie Shoemaker. And she kept everybody's children, her children, her grandchildren, and all the neighbor's grandchildren. And I went to school with some of her grandchildren, and so I knew them, but... One evening, Dad went back there to where she lived to, to visit her. He was the deacon. I guess he needed to say, see if she needed help or anything. She was a member of the church. And as he got there, she was taking the bread out of the oven. And Dad asked her, oh, you're going to have fresh bread for supper? And she says, no, sir. That's for next week. I let it get stale a little bit so they don't eat so much. <laughs> So you ladies, I'm uh, giving you a trick there. In Exodus chapter 16, we have the story of God meeting the needs of his people in the wilderness and providing manna for them. And it reads like this. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you, and the people will go out each day and gather enough for that day, and in that way I will test them to see whether they will follow my instructions. And the people of Israel called the bread manna. And it was like white, like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made in honey. And so I haven't tasted uh, <clears throat> the goods, donuts, really. Uh, maybe that's where they got their recipe. Uh, I know some people think Krispy Kreme's recipe is made out of manna. I don't. They're not as good as homemade, but anyway. <laughs> Job 23, but he knows the way that I take, and when he has tested me, I will come forth as gold, and my feet have closely followed his steps, and I have kept his way without turning aside, and I have not departed from his commands or of his lips, and I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my daily bread. And that would go along with what we talked about last night. And as necessary and as important as food is, Job is responding to his accusers during this very grievous and disappointing period of his life. And he says, I can look back over my life with total integrity that I've never intentionally failed God. And I've been careful to follow his commands because I enjoy his commands as much as I enjoy my daily bread. And so... Has that been your and my experience? 
Well, maybe when we've been ground and crushed and tried like Job, it will be. Not long ago, I was getting a checkup and the lady was going over my blood work. I go to Dr. Michael Haney and and she gave me a relatively good report and she seemed happy, but she cautioned me to stay away from the bread. And somehow that didn't sound very scriptural. <laughs> now I want to talk just as a point of interest, I want to talk a little bit about the different grains that are used to make flour for baking. Wheat has its origins in the Mediterranean area, Jordan, Israel, Iraq, Syria, and Turkey. But today, through the advancement of genetics, it's grown in almost every country of the world. Last year, there was over 765 million tons of wheat growing. And the world wheat production has tripled since 1960 because of genetic improvements. I noticed today that the price of wheat is $11.31 and a half. It's never been that high before. Uh, some countries had a drought. Uh, most of Canada, Western Canada, didn't have a very high production of wheat last year. And now the Ukraine, which is a huge wheat growing area, is being blown up. It don't look good for people that depend on flour. It's not going to be as cheap as it was. And so your donuts are going to have to go up. $11.31 <laughs> a bushel today. If I was in northern, uh, the northern prairie states, the Dakotas and the Canadian provinces, I'd be planting wheat. It's too late to plant it in the south. We plant ours in the fall. Some of the other major food staples are corn, rice, potatoes, yams, beans, sorghum, and plantains. And then there's the uh, tropical areas of Asia and Africa that eat uh, sago palm for their starch. Of course, wheat flour is used for many things, from donuts to gravy, shredded wheat to Wheaties, porridge, pies, breads, all kinds of things. It's become a staple for all of us. <clears throat> I want to make some spiritual parallels to bread and in its place in our life and how we get to the point of having bread. I'd like to, you're familiar with Psalm 51. It was written by David after his conviction of uh, the Spirit smote his conscience after his fall with another man's wife. And you know those verses in Psalm 51, but I want to read Psalm 51, 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So I want to talk about brokenness and surrender. You know, in a time of spiritual fervor, you may be at Bible school, you may be at SMBI, you may be at any number of Bible schools or down here in Georgia. You may be at revival meetings or a youth weekend and you feel so pumped and you, yeah, Lord, I'll surrender all. And you are passionate about the call of God on your life and for service. And there's no reserves. I remember almost 50 years ago that I went to Rosedale. And one evening we had a campfire out there behind the dorms and it was a warm fallish evening, chilly a little bit, and they had a fire and there was big guy like Carl there strumming his guitar and there was girls there passing around roasted marshmallows and they were singing these campfire songs and oh it was such a warm and bonding time and they were singing this song I'd never heard before. Would you be poured out like wine? Do y'all know that song? Some of you. Can you lead it? 
Yeah, the first verse. I mean, I know that, I, I know that at least the chorus part, I don't know if there's a Yeah, part. well, would you be poured out like wine upon the yes, altar for yes. me? Go ahead with that thing. Almost. All right. Would you be so one with me that you would do just as I will? Would you be light and love and life, my words fulfilled? And you can sing that song when you're sitting around a campfire and all your friends are there, and, and um, you know Carl's there playing his guitar, and the girls are passing around snacks, and, and that's a good time. You can. You can just praise Jesus real easy like that. But then, when you go to the second verse, and there's a call for sacrifice. And we probably sang that second verse, yes, I'll be poured out like wine upon the altar for you. And yes, I'll be broken like bread to feed the hungry. Yes, I'll be so one with you that I will do just as you will. Yes, I'll be light and life and love, your words fulfill. And it all seems like such a beautiful thing until we actually are poured out like wine and broken like bread. You must remember that grapes need to be crushed to be poured out like wine. And bread is made of wheat, a grain that is cracked and crushed and broken and ground and kneaded and baked before it can be broken and served to feed the hungry. And when we think about all this means in our life, we may not want to sing that song anymore. I want to suggest to you this evening that God uses circumstances and people in our lives to bring us to a place of brokenness. And brokenness is a place where we recognize that all that I am and all that I do is of myself miserably insufficient. We are doing it in our own strength and our own power. And it is far from what God wants from us. Our human nature would have us think how fortunate God is to have us on his side or on his team. You know, all of us are vulnerable to feelings of pride and self-righteousness. But humility is a must. It's a requirement before we can be poured out like wine and broken like bread. Without brokenness, it's easy to think that we're owed something for, for our service to God. That we can come to Him and look at others and be congratulated and rewarded, appeased and prospered. I remember I spent seven years in northern Ontario and five of those years were in the bush. And I thought of my peers back in America making money. And I was sometimes discontent. But that's not what, that wasn't for me to decide. God had asked that of me, and he asked my peers to do something else. But yet we can feel kind of self-righteous that we're in this service or that we're doing this or we're doing that. or You know, that we drove all the way over here for some preacher's meeting while they was having a potluck or, you, you know what I mean? And you can feel kind of pat yourself on the shoulder, but all the sacrifice you're making, that's human nature. We're all vulnerable to those kind of thoughts. Vance Havner says this, God uses broken things. It takes broken soil to produce a crop, broken clouds to give rain, and broken grain to give bread. Another thing that God uses brokenness is the brokenness of sin to help us see that there's nothing good, no part of us 
apart from his grace and mercy and forgiveness, can be of any value to God. You know, we need to come to God as King David and cry, Have mercy on me, wash away my sin, for I know my transgression and my sin are always before me. And then there are those who say that brokenness is not really necessary because of God's grace through Jesus and his work on the cross. And that's prevalent in many churches and communities today that, you know, only believe and you don't need to repent, really, or you just keep right on living like you did and enjoying the, the flesh. But God writes of a time in Jeremiah when the world has lost its ability to feel shame, and we're there again. And you know, when our political leaders live in deep sin, and our community leaders are not ashamed of their sins in our friends and neighbors that's where we are i'd like to read jeremiah chapter 3 therefore the showers have been withheld and those spring rains have fallen you have become the you have the brazen look of a prostitute you refuse to blush with shame were they ashamed when they committed abomination nay they were not ashamed at all neither could they blush Therefore they shall fall among them that fall, and at the time that I visit them, they shall be cast down, saith the Lord. <clears throat> Sometimes God uses the brokenness of circumstances in our life. You know, most of us want to be godly people. We want to be godly, but we don't want to deal with the whole suffering thing. But you know, sometimes the character of Christ can only be worked out through us by difficult and unpleasant things in our lives and not by some virtue of our own or some effort or good intentions on our part. And I'd like to read Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7. And this is talking about Jesus. And during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. And although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And so if Jesus had to suffer and surrender his will to the Father, how much more for you and I? <clears throat> Oswald Chambers says this, God can never make us whine if we object to the fingers he uses to crush us. And so I ask you, are you willing? Am I willing for God to use people, someone in the brotherhood or some other circumstances to crush and break you to be the person that he can use? You know, I can look back and think of the many people concerned people who corrected and encouraged me to be all that God wanted me to be so that the wine and the bread would taste better. It wasn't any fun at the time. I could tell you lots of stories. Sometimes God will use the brokenness of intercession. And it's important to see in our prayers to learn to see others in difficult situations. And as God would see them, and I've heard you all pray many times since I'm here about the people of the Ukraine. Can we see those people like God? Can we have mercy? Or are we tempted to think, you know, that's across the water, that's over there. It doesn't really affect me except, yeah, the price of donuts are going up and it hurts at the pump. But otherwise, it doesn't involve me. We must learn to develop a sensitivity for disadvantaged and hurting people where we learn to see <clears throat> through the eyes of our compassionate Savior instead of us as selfish human beings. We need to be broken so that we can feel the heartache of our Father for those who He created who through no fault of their own can feel the lack of love or a struggle for happiness or struggling 
for someone's acceptance. When we minister to and serve others in our own strength, the wine will always be bitter and the bread lacking nourishment. And so, I want to ask you this evening, I brought some stuff here, as usual. How do y'all like to eat your wheat? Y'all like it this way? How many of you have, would like to eat your daily portion of wheat like this? Nobody? How many of you grew up where you'd take wheat heads and rub them together and blow the chaff out and eat? eat the grain. That's an improvement, isn't it? But all this beards and husks and stuff is, it ain't over good. But you know, a lot of people want to go through the Christian life and they want to be the bread of life and not be broken and not be crushed. They want to just stay like, like the way they were. Well, <clears throat> Most of us are familiar with wheat, whole wheat. But how many of you want to eat your wheat like this? Would you like a bowl of this in the morning with milk and a little brown sugar on it? Would it be good for you, Mildred? I don't know. I don't have a gizzard like a chicken. But there again, we may be content for God to take some of the rough edges off, some of the beards and the husks, but please let us stay like this. That's how we want to be. We want uh, individualism. You see each grain, you can see each one. We don't want, we want to stand out, we want to shine, we want people to recognize us. We don't want to be blended in with the crowd. But yet, most of us, if we're honest, we like our wheat when it looks like this. There's no individual grains there. It's just cracked and ground to a pulp. A loaf of bread, I didn't bring a loaf is symbolic of a local church brotherhood. For our purpose tonight, you picture a whole loaf of bread, and that is your church brotherhood. Now I know there's a trend towards healthy breads. You know, some of them look a lot like bird seed. But they often don't stick together very well and are not nearly so pliable and soft with a fine light texture. I personally am not a huge fan of bread with hard things mixed in the flour. Those things are symbolic of things that haven't been cracked, broken, or sifted for the good of the whole. My mother always used one of these and um, I doubt my sisters do. How many of you ladies still use a flour sifter? All of you gray-haired. <laughs> do you ever bake? Do you use one of these? Never heard of it. Do you know what it is? Good. At least you know what it is. <laughs> Miss Miriam, why do you still use this thing? Is it a habit or... Or don't your flowers, aren't they ground properly? Or? Well, <clears throat> my mother often baked on Saturday mornings, and then when we'd come in from cutting wood or whatever, she'd have cookies or cakes. And I remember her measuring out her stuff for a cake, and she'd put a sheet of wax paper on the table, and she'd be the and grinding that flour through the sifter. And I said, hey, Mom, why in the world are you doing that stuff's already ground to a pulp? And she said, it's so that my cake will be light and fluffy and so that there's no hard little lumps get through. And it's sifted. It's broken 
it's cracked. It has to be fine. And she's looking for those lumps and kernels, just like those individual church members who believe in individualism and ruin the cake of brotherhood. Romans 12.10, Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honor, preferring one another. Now, if you come to our church for communion, uh, Grace brings the bread. And I'm real proud of her communion bread. People ask for the recipe. It is wonderful. She don't bring that whole earth, whole uh, holistic variety of sunflower seed, whatever kind, pumpkin seed. That would be representative of the stubborn, the non-submissive type. Her bread is soft and light and consistent from grains of individual wheat that are cracked and broken and sifted for the good of the whole loaf or the body. Luke twenty-two nineteen, and he took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them saying, this is my body given to you, do this in remembrance of me. And so I got a piece of bread off of Mildred a while ago, and you see it's, there are no hard lumps in that thing, no big seeds, it's all been ground and crushed and sifted. For the good of whole brotherhood. How many of y'all like eating a piece of bread and you bite down on a gravel? If you've been in church administration very long, you know who the gravels are in your church. There's usually one in every church. Hopefully it's only one. Right? Sorry, it's kind of falling apart. I'm going to share you some very personal, painfully personal illustrations because I don't know yours. Please don't read more into this than is meant to be. But I'm going to tell you about brotherhood. My first one is Grace, the veiling in Bishop Brubaker. Grace and I moved to South Carolina in 1984 after living seven years in northwestern Ontario. And uh, she grew up, she's Canadian, that was her life, her home. And she grew up wearing a flowing veiling. That was the practice, the culture there. To her, only liberal, non-submissive ladies went up to northwestern Ontario and didn't wear veilings, but insisted on wearing traditional fitted coverings. Her preference was just as strong for her faith and practice as others was opposed or preferred the fitted style. And we had only planned to live there for a short time and then move back to Canada. And when it became apparent that what we thought was God's will and direction for us was not going to happen, We applied to transfer our membership, and I went to see Bishop Brubaker. Some of you knew him. He passed away last spring. I made my case for Grace to continue to wear a flowing veiling. Uncle Howard was patient. He was kind and caring. But in the end, he said, no. So I went home and told my wife what I didn't want to, but knew I should. Were there tears? Of course there was. Did she suddenly just fall in love with a different and new application? No. So what did she do? She got up with Pastor Miller's wife, Ruby, and got some different coverings. That's what the Brotherhood asked. And that's what we did. What will you do for the sake of brotherhood and the well-being and concern of the whole loaf? The ordination and the complaint. 
Soon after we moved to South Carolina, I don't know how long it was, a year or two, there was an ordination planned for the congregation that we attended. And brother and sister Allen and Lucinda Schrock shared a lot with Grace and I. It was not really on my list of things that we wanted to do, but um, God has a way of bearing down on you and His Spirit is way harder on you than a person can be. And so we surrendered our will to go through with that process. One day, or maybe it was two days before the ordination, Bishop Brubaker came by the house and said that a complaint had come about us, and he asked uh, if we could talk about it. And I said, oh, that's not a problem. We'll just drop out, and you just ordain Alan and Lucinda anyway. I mean, you know, it's for them anyway. And he said, no, no. And he said... I'll never forget what he said. What you're being accused of is not wrong in itself. But can I go back and tell that brother that for his sake you won't do it anymore? And we said yes to something that we felt was petty and trite. But that is brotherhood. Being ground and sifted for the good of the whole loaf. It is so first grade to ride the fence and see what you can get by with and thumb your nose at brotherhood understandings. There is a place to make change. We have conference. You have conference. Other churches have members meetings. Whatever uh, the, the process. There is due process to make changes. There should be changes made. Uh, this is not the Civil War era anymore. And other churches will come out at different places than we do. That doesn't necessarily make them wrong as long as they maintain a biblical standard. There is a biblical standard. And so on the issue of veiling, some choose this, some choose that. But is it an adequate veiling? That's the issue. Like I told Nathan, if you are in church administration very long, you will most certainly meet these folks that like to threaten the leadership. If you don't do so-and-so with Brother Jones, then we won't take communion or, or we'll do... They, they're trying to blackmail the leadership or other manipulative threats. They, my friends, are less than first grade. An evangelist came into our community and was having revivals the first spring after Gideon was killed. One day he came and talked to me after church and perhaps he saw that the whole process had taken its toll on me and there wasn't a lot of wind in my sails. He said this to me, I have listened to what people here are saying about you since Gideon's death. They are saying that you're a better man for it. And I felt like crying out to God from my broken heart, but couldn't have been a better man some other way. But that decision is up to God, and I must trust His judgment for the path that He leads our family on. I want to read a poem for others. Lord, let me live from day to day in such a self-forgetful way that even when I kneel to pray, my prayer should be for others. Help me in all the work I do ever be sincere and true and know that all I'll do for Thee must needs be done for others. Let self be crucified and slain and buried deep, not rise again, and may all efforts be in vain unless they're done for others. And when my work on earth is done, and my new work in heaven's begun, may I forget the crown I've won while thinking still of others. 
yes, others. Lord, yes, others, let this motto be. Help me to live for others that I may live with thee. The reality of working out our humanity in the form of brotherhood <coughs> takes effort. Someone has said that if you want to see what fiber your church is made out of, try to run a Christian school. And then if you survive that, try to build or add on to your church. And uh, there is some truth in that. <coughs> I want to read you a story written by Robert Baker. This is true. <clears throat> the most impressive act I ever missed, witnessed in the fellowship of the believers occurred at Prairie Street Mennonite Church when I was a teenage boy. That was over 35 years ago, and yet that experience is as fresh in my mind as if it were happening this moment in this very room. It involved two people, one now deceased, the other still living today, far away from this city in Elkhart, Indiana, where the original memorable event took place. In another sense, however, it involved all of us in that church that day. It was hidden from no one, and it was open to all, and what I saw that day outlived any sermon I ever heard. Now I was sitting near the rear of the church when this tall man came down the aisle and he stopped several benches ahead of me and he signaled to a particular man. He leaned over and whispered a few words. I was close, but I could not hear the words, yet I knew what he said. The expression on his face was one of great tenderness and love. I thought he was about to cry. Later, he did cry. Now, knowing what was taking place in that church during that particular service, I did not have to hear the actual words he spoke. I could read his slightly moving lips. I knew why he was there, and my boyish heart was strangely stirred. Now, when I was a boy, kind brethren in the church who knew of the poverty of our family arranged for me to work on Saturdays in after school at a local store that employed only Mennonites at the time. I had not been at that place of employment very long when I realized that two of the brethren did not get along. They had periodic misunderstandings. Voices would be raised and anger was present. And as I saw, and as I was a new Christian, I could not understand these differences the harsh words, and I was puzzled, disturbed, and hurt. That Sunday at Prairie Street Mennonite Church, some four pews ahead of me, the two men faced each other. The words the tall man said to the older brother on the church bench, the words that I could lip read were the words whispered, may I wash your feet? I watched those two brethren walk to the front of the church. The tall one took a towel from the bench and he gently motioned the other to be seated. And both of them were barefoot. The tall one knelt down and he girded himself with the towel and he tenderly washed his brother's feet. And then they exchanged places and the act was repeated. They both arose and the towel was laid aside and they stood facing each other in front of that church. The clock stood still. Time was frozen for a microsecond. And it was like a beautiful painting and their faces glistened with tears. Then action once more. Gentle, gentle action. They pressed their cheeks together and then it was over. Yet it was never really over. By that brief act of washing one another's feet, they dissolved all the puzzlement, disturbance, 
and hurt that swirled within this young boy's heart. I want to tell you this evening that Jesus is the bread of life. And he supplies all of our needs. And he was broken and crushed for our iniquities. I don't know you people real good. I mean, I'm learning your names and I know where you fit in. And I, know. I sense that you all have a good brotherhood, a good spirit of community here. But it takes effort. And Jesus' heart is disturbed and worried when he sees his people bicker and fight and not get along. But I'm so thankful this evening for Jesus who saw fit to allow me to be crushed and broken so that the wine would be sweeter and the bread more nutritious. Some years ago, Grace and I went to see her mother. Her mother was sick. She had terminal illness. and We drove to Detroit. We don't normally go that way. We go further west. But she has a brother that lives uh, across from Detroit in London, Ontario. And so we were going to see them on the way up. And we got to Detroit, and someone says, you know, you need to go to the Henry Ford Museum. That's, that's really interesting. And So we had a little time, and I thought we could go to the Henry Ford Museum and then go over across into Ontario and visit our brother. So we got there early in the morning, 8 o'clock. And you could get in. The doors weren't locked to the entrance but the ticket booths were barred, and there's a sign that says it opens at 9. There was just a few people in there, and there's this little old man came up, oh, come up to us, and he says, did you all come to see the museum? And I said, yes, sir, we did. He says, I'll tell you what. He said, you all come back right here at 9 o'clock. He said, I just come here every morning to jog in this place, these big halls, and he said, I used to work for Henry Ford. I knew Henry Ford. I have a lifetime pass to this place. And if you come back at 9 o'clock, I will meet you right here. And I will get you in. He says, don't go over there and buy any tickets. And so I didn't know if this guy was hoodooing me or not. But So Grace and I, we milled around and looked at some displays that were outside of the museum and at 9 o'clock, just before 9, we eased back to where he told us we'd be. And sure enough, here he come, a smile on his face as big as Texas. And he said, follow me. And those people had long lines up to the ticket booths. You know, they were paying their $35 or $40 for a ticket to get in. He says, come with me. We went down this long hall, and then we turned left and went up this other hall, and about halfway up that hall, there was an iron bar gate. You couldn't go through that gate. And beside that gate was a big oak roll-top desk. And a lady was sitting there. It looked like sugar wouldn't melt in her mouth. And she was the ticket lady. I had no reason to be there. I had not bought the ticket. I didn't know Henry Ford. Never worked for him. I've had a few of his pickup trucks, but I didn't know Henry Ford. And we marched up to that gate, and that lady gave us this look. And the little old man said, there with me, let him in. Jesus says, there with me, let him in. So if you've never made your calling tonight, tonight is your chance. It's not the little old man that knew Henry Ford. It's Jesus 
Or maybe you know there's things in your life that is, would keep you from entering the gate past the big desk. Tonight is your night to make it right. Shall we sing just as I am? Stand to your feet if you feel the Spirit speaking to you. Thanks for your attention. You're a very easy crowd to speak to. I apologize that I talked too long, but Brother Nathan.